But at a strategic level, the Russians had lost anyway when they went in because Russia has lost any sort of prestige, which is what Putin wanted. They've become a pariah state. Their economy is shot and been sent back into the Dark Ages. And that will take 30 years to recover. And perhaps most importantly, the military prestige that Putin wanted and promised his nation, again, is completely gone because the Russian military has been utterly humiliated and I suspect totally defeated. That was from our original Bloody Russia podcast on the 29th of March. And this next clip is from our follow-up at the end of May, Bloody Russia Part 2, Tipping Point. Now, I know we're not a news channel, but when we first started this podcast, we stated that history doesn't exactly repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Even their mass approach across that long front in the east, they've had to narrow down because that wasn't working either. Uh, People were saying, oh, they're they're going to be in a much stronger position because they can manoeuvre, they can use their artillery. But in fact, it's, it's like coloured balls on a pool table. They're easier to spot and easier to take out. And you can see what trouble they're in by the fact that they're even deploying T-62s, tanks that were designed in the 1950s. So their modern equipment, what they had, has been completely denuded, whereas the inventory of the Ukrainians is improving by the week. So that sort of balance, that superiority that the Russians might thought to have been had, has has gone. Hello and welcome. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. Thank you for dialing into Bloody Violent History. All episodes are available to play on our website. Today we're going to take a third look at the war being waged by Russia against Ukraine. 215 days have passed since the invasion began. In that time, we've seen Russia, the Russian offensive, stopped and then pushed back from Kyiv and now Kharkiv in the east. And so Putin, inspired perhaps by his St. Petersburg rat story, is doubling down, making threats, Proclaiming annexed Ukrainian territory is now part of Mother Russia, rattling the nuclear sabre. But this won't work. The Ukrainians are winning. They are highly motivated, morale is strong, and the culmination approaches, and the end game for Putin's Russia. Now, of course, we don't know what will happen to Russia and Putin. Perhaps some murky figure from the FSB XKGB, will remove Putin and after a couple of days' silence will be introduced to the new leader of the Russian Federation. Or, if the Russians get lucky and the rest of us into the bargain, there will be a citizen's revolution like the Revolution of Dignity in Ukraine in February 2014. The war curtailed and a real attempt at democracy beginning in Russia. A third option... Putin is removed by the army. But don't hold your breath on this. The army is a mess and run by incompetence and crooks, as we've seen. Sergei Shoigu, head of the army, is an engineer by profession. And lastly, the Russian Federation just collapses, the empire sundering into a mishmash of countries and fiefdoms, no doubt ready to argue with their neighbours about borders 
and some with access to nuclear weapons. So we probably don't want that. No doubt there are other possibilities, but whatever we think, Putin is finished. In some fashion, Russia will collapse, and most important, Ukraine will win the war. Jamie, truth and fantasy. Not a bad title for that opening section, because we're in a realm of what is happening on the ground and what is happening in Putin's mind, and they're two totally different things. We've been used to Russia's dour brutality, its torture, its continuing um, occupation of parts of Ukraine, its intended annexation of the ground that it's taken. But in the meantime, the Ukrainians have mounted their counteroffensive, as we know. They've made dramatic gains. The Russians are not really managing to defend. And the Ukrainians have, as we've said in previous uh, Bloody Russia podcasts, have more manpower and more weapons than people might have imagined. And I suspect they will be able to sustain those counteroffensives. Um, both in the Kherson region and the Kharkiv region, so, and going into the Donbass. So it'll be very interesting to, to watch how this develops, and we'll talk about the, the, the winter freeze and what will happen after that. But the Ukrainians aren't going to let up, and the Ukrainians are not going to negotiate uh, from a position of weakness. They're going to wait until they have uh, a dominant hand. And they're not going to allow the Russians either to annex their land or to freeze the conflict. There was never going to be a frozen conflict here. So, so Tony Radican, chief of the defence staff, what has he got to say about this? Well, it's worth saying that what we've said in the previous two podcasts on Bloody Russia is that we're not alone in this, because CDS, chief of the defence staff, said that essentially Russia has lost. And Richard Moore of the Secret Intelligence Service said, Russia has run out of steam. And then my old professor, Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, Emeritus Professor of War Studies, he's been very interesting about it because he said, Russia, the campaign is unraveling and it could well unravel faster than we think. And I'm of the opinion that it won't only unravel on the battlefield, but it will start unraveling in Russia as well, because the the, the blowback from Russia's brutality, cruelty, uh, failed invasion is going to seep back. It's no longer a secret in, in Russia. Protests have begun, and yes, there'll be clamp, clamp downs. Yes, there will be more senior officials thrown out of windows and thrown downstairs uh, and having fatal accidents. But Putin is having to guard against both the, the, the sort of groundswell against the war and the right, the far nationalist right, which is one of the reasons that he has ended up with this sort of partial uh, mobilization of forces. It's not the full mobilization. I've never believed he would have a general mobilization. I think I said in the last podcast it was basically shoveling more shit into the surpipe. And this is exactly what is happening. There's a partial mobilization, but they're not going to be able to train them in time. They're not going to be able to train them through the winter. They don't have the command and control. They don't have the logistics. Most of the training battalions have been decimated in Ukraine already. 
how are they going to prepare these people for the front? How are they going to prepare these people for the modern battlefield and to use modern weaponry? It, it's not going to happen. It's essentially an advertising campaign. It's to reassure himself and it's to reassure the far-right nationalists in Russia. And the Russian people, I think they are still, quite a lot of them, in a state of denial about what's going on. I know that this mobilisation will probably um, wake some of them up. Certainly the the aeroplanes are all booked up from Russia, leaving, leaving Russia at the moment. But I've seen a, a few sort of interviews of people being asked on the streets in Russia what they think. And they really, it seems to be so far away for some of them. Well, they don't want to offend the authorities. We'll get on to it with the next section, Mindset, because it's fascinating to see how both the Russian people and the establishment are, are dealing with the situation as it, it starts to leak out that it's no longer a limited and a special military operation, but it is a war. Right, well then let's move promptly on to the next section, which is the, the mindset. Tell me about what Bill, Bill Browder has to say. Bill Browder put it so well in his book Red Notice. He, he talked about Russia being really the prison yard. It's the idea that it's the bully that succeeds. And if you challenge that bully, that bully will double down. They can't lose face, they can't lose position. So they will always double down on the situation, which is what Putin is doing now. He, he can't afford to be seen to lose. He can't lose status. He can't have his pride ruptured. And so he's doubling down. So all you can do is either be cowed by it and surrender or fight to the end. You have to cripple them or kill them. And so this is why the Ukrainians have gone in hard. This is why they continue to fight. And this is why Putin has responded in the way he has. And once you understand the Russian mindset, once you understand that it's suffused with paranoia and this sort of imperialist notion, this Double idea speed. of being vulnerable as well, you can see why they, they move in the way they do. Why is the UK such an arch enemy of Russia? Why, does it, why do they consider us such an enemy? I think they consider it because, firstly, the special relationship with the United States of the, of the United Kingdom, partly because of white Russians and the history there, that we were involved in that, uh, partly because, I suppose, we have a monarchy, partly because we're a democracy, and the one thing the Russians don't like are liberal democracies, and partly because of... You know, the, the the last century that that you know we held out against tyranny, and I think they they resent that, and they Did, certainly resent the, the the British prime ministers being so vocal and backing Ukraine. I mean, whether yeah, do you think it's because they they it's hard to get around us? Like you know, I mean, the 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 continental powers they play a game of sort of cozying up and then kicking them in the nuts, you know, alternatively, whereas they know they can't really cosy up to us. I, I, th I, th I think the British attitude has always been straighter than those and less complicated than those of, say, Germany and France. And Germany has perpetually uh, been backsliding. It's, it's firmed up its position now. It's had to. It's been 
humiliated and, and pushed into that particular corner, but it did so reluctantly. And certainly it was far more dependent on both Russian business and on Russian gas and, and fossil fuels. So, and there is all that Second World War guilt. There, there is that guilt, and it's, it's quite... But they bizarre. kind of used it, in a way, sometimes to their own benefit. I mean, after all, those many millions of Russians who died in the Second World, an awful lot of them were actually Ukrainians. Well, exactly. But, but I mean, the Germans, first of all, they invaded Russia and then they cozied up to Russia. It, it, and and the, the Germans have always had this particular ostpolitik, this, this, this looking to the east. So that has been what, what they've looked at. It's, it's, in a way, easier being an island like the United Kingdom. I mean, it's, it's, it's easier being offshore. Yeah. And it gives us a, a different vantage point, a different view of Russia. And we're not so immediately affected by uh, Russia's uh, strategic position and being on the doorstep. Okay. Well, back to the Russian mindset um, and their sort of imperialism. Yes, I think, you know, if you look at the 31-page document, the, the Russians, of course, with their usual doublespeak, call a humanitarian document, talking about the Russian world and the need to support it and project it and encourage it. Is this, this the way is, when you punch someone in the face and say that's a humanitarian gesture? Yes, we're doing it for you. <laughs> we're doing it for your benefit. Uh, uh, but it's very telling about Russia and certainly the, 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 the Russian elite's view of the world and, the, and what Putin wants to project. He, he, he has always believed in the Russian world. He has always believed in the maintaining of what was the, the, the Soviet Union and its borders and boundaries. And there's no denying that, that Russia has felt vulnerable to land attack. And because it's a, a Eurasian country, because it's both European and Asian, and it's constrained within its land borders. I mean, if you look at the Baltics, it's it's hemmed in by NATO there. If you look at the Black Sea, it's hemmed in by NATO and Turkey. It's, it's very landlocked. And so it, 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 it does feel vulnerable. And of course, it felt, Putin certainly felt that going into Ukraine was A, going to be easy, and B, he didn't want to have the vulnerability of a democratic capitalist, free enterprise, market economy on the borders of Russia. Because if anything showed up, the failure of Russia, the failure of its political system and economy, it would be a thriving Ukraine on its flank. And it, did, it didn't like that at all. So do you think um, Putin is turning into Monty Python's Black Knight? Before our very eyes. Well, it goes back to Bill Browder and this idea of the prison yard. And yes, it's it's the idea that you cut the arms and legs off the opponent, and the opponent, you know, the head is left, and and the the knight is still shouting, you know, I can bite you, come back and fight. <laughs> it's just a scratch, and 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 this is the the the, the myth that that. Putin is trying to perpetrate, and right. and so it is. If it if it if it wasn't so tragic. It would be yeah. ridiculous and extremely funny. He uh, must uh, be taking some something of a lesson from uh, from Richard the Third's standard bearer at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. Oh, it's very similar to that. I mean, the, the standard bearer of Richard III. Once Richard the Third had charged at Henry Tudor on the battlefield and been brought down, the, the standard bearer refused to surrender the standard. He he, he had both his legs cut off. 
and continued to hold on to the standard and refused to hand it over and was eventually killed. But but whether it's that standard bearer or the Black Knight in Monty Python or Putin, it's this same mentality. It's the same bloody-mindedness. It's the same inability to understand that everything has gone wrong around you, that, that what you started out with has collapsed. And, and this is what Putin ha- has yet to understand, yet to realise. I think from a- any viewpoint, he is not going to make this work. And And were he to have a general mobilisation, that wouldn't work. There's nowhere to deploy these men. There's nowhere to train them. There's nowhere to equip them. He's lost. He's, he's left things far too late. And it's very difficult to retrieve that situation. And yes, you get commentators saying uh, the, the Russians have deep reserves. They can, they can go in for the long term. But the answer is they can't. That, that, that once you've lost, once you've been pushed back, how do you regenerate? How do you morph into an effective offensive force that they no longer have? Okay, so staying with mindset, the Americans, UK and NATO... What's going on with them? I think the West has solidified around a cause. I think there's no doubt that having seen that Ukraine is doing so well, that Ukraine is on the front foot now, it is easier to persuade doubters to get behind the campaign, to ensure that Ukraine is properly supplied, that Ukraine has the political backing. And that has certainly become stronger. And I think it will remain throughout the winter. I think Europe has done better at ensuring uh, fossil fuel supplies, gas supplies, uh, than, than was imagined at the beginning of all this. I think the panic, in a way, has settled down. And so it's easier to take a stronger line. Yes, there will be worries and concerns about Putin's imagined red lines and his nuclear saber-rattling. And we'll talk about this later, whether there is such a thing really as tactical nuclear weapons or whether it will go strategic immediately. But certainly from the West point of view, it has been a very successful campaign, first in helping Ukraine defend itself and now allowing Ukraine to retake territory. Okay, so, um, yeah, it's good versus evil, freedom versus tyranny, democracies versus autocracies. But the Americans, are they using this, or are the Western allies using this as a way to bleed out Russia? It's certainly the best proxy war the United States has ever had. Yes, it's a just war. Yes, it is good against evil. It's a very easy one to defend this campaign by the Ukrainians. It's so obviously in self-defense. It's so obviously in defense of all the things the United Nations claims it stands for and self-determination, sovereignty, and internationally recognized borders. But from the American point of view, you know, they've spent about $25 billion on this campaign in helping uh, Ukrainians with military aid. And that's just over 3% of the US defense budget. And for that, they've managed to see the Ukrainians destroy up to 2,000 Russian tanks, uh, deny their air force, destroy over 5,000 armored vehicles. 
that's, that's two-thirds of Russia's frontline tank force. I mean, those are tanks that will no longer be up against NATO's borders. So it's been a stunning victory in terms of proxy war, and that's been without the loss of a single uh, American soldier, sailor, airman. It, it's been well, without the loss of a single U.S. aircraft or NATO aircraft. So it, it has been an extraordinarily successful campaign so far. Um, so what do you think about Henry Kissinger's uh, comment that we mustn't humiliate Russia? I think that... Uh, I, I don't want to be coarse and say he's talking out of his 99-year-old backside, but... You just did. Uh, oh, so, so I did. But I, I, I think the thing is, he, he's a great believer in rail politic, and I, I think that there comes a moment where you have to say there has to be morality involved as well. There are things where you can't just do a cheap deal to make things better because it will come back and bite you later on. I think that if Ukraine started peace talks now, the, the Russians would simply use it to A, stabilise their gains, solidify their gains, and also uh, create a launch pad for future military action. So I don't see any reason to negotiate with the Russians at this point. In terms of humiliating the Russians, well, it is the Russians who have humiliated themselves. They created this. They created this, this, uh, this scene that has blown up in their face. So they can't really blame anyone else. So I don't think humiliation is really the, the term to use. We're not rubbing Russia's noses in it. We're simply saying get out. And to round it off, China and the other great powers, what are they thinking about things now? I think China has got itself into a terribly awkward situation and President Xi's agreement with Putin for unlimited friendship has really gone sour. And the fact that China is now having to admonish Russia for its military campaign that has abstained in the United Nations in terms of allowing Zelensky to do a video conference call with the General Assembly. All these things are showing this sort of discomfort of China in terms of its relationship with Russia. I think I said in a previous podcast that they, they've realised that they've hitched their cart to this sort of rabid, dying horse. And although they will benefit in certain ways economically in terms of getting cheap gas supplies from Russia. In other ways, they have really called it wrong. They still rely dramatically on Western economic interaction and cooperation. That's where their main markets are. It's not in Russia. And Russia is just going to be this sort of uh, rabid, mad sort of cousin across the border. And it's quite bizarre, this idea of friendship. I mean, China and Russia have been long-term enemies for, for, for years. I mean, yes, there was a certain degree of cooperation with their ideology. But actually, in terms of geopolitics, they are rivals. So I can't see that friendship lasting. Well, and also, China, it's an opportunity for China to hoover up some assets and 
land and whatever in the east. They, they, they will certainly do that. And that will create its own frictions with Russia because Russia is nothing if not xenophobic and paranoid. So the, the, Russia's paranoia about NATO and the West and the United States will, will quickly evolve into paranoia about China and its influence and its relative economic strength. Vis-à-vis uh, -vis the Russians, so uh, that is going to be interesting to watch, and I, I, I cannot see that friendship developing long term. I mean, China wanted this sort of anti-Western alliance, but it has the most terrible partner in Russia, and an unreliable partner in Russia. And given that Russia was telling both India and China, yes, we want to end this war quickly, it's, and then, then escalates again. So no one actually believes Putin. No one actually thinks that he's reliable or a reliable partner. And you add to that the lousy results, the lousy performance of Russia's military equipment on which China has relied so long, and India has certainly relied for so long. So it, it's not a good bedrock. It hasn't done Russian arms sales any good at all. And so long term, it'll be interesting to see how, how China develops and how its policy towards Russia develops. But I, 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 I don't see this being a comfortable relationship. And again, you look at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and what was going on there and how people are tilting away from Russia. And, and again, this is a block that was What, the body language of keeping Putin waiting for various meetings as opposed to what he normally does, which is he keeps them waiting. Well, yes, and, and the sort of essential basic relationships between those countries. This, the SCO, was, was set up really to rival the, the, the economic power of, of, of the West, of the United States and the West, and to come up with a different view of global politics. But what you see is a very uneasy collection of countries. I mean, to have China and India and Pakistan in the same room, well, India loathes China, India loathes Pakistan, and China long-term won't really be an eternal friend of Russia. So it's not an easy relationship. And then you get all the Central Asian countries that are running pretty hard from Russia. They see that Russia has been weakened, the influence of Russia has gone down, so they're actually moving away. And so it will be interesting to see how countries like Kazakhstan respond long term. I mean, they're all beginning to get a bit shifty, to get a, get a little suspicious of their links to Russia. And I think you'll well, probably see not, it. You know, there's a chance that they'd be next on the list. If, if Russia had succeeded in Ukraine, they might have piled into Kazakhstan. And in, in a way, they might be rather pleased that A, Russia is losing, and that B, America's proxy war is succeeding or the West's proxy war is succeeding. So they can see that Russia being bled out will do them a power of good. So groups like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and other sort of links between these so-called anti-Western nations I don't think will survive. They don't have a bedrock. They don't have a common ideology or a common belief. At okay. least in the West, we believe in Western liberal democracy, and that's the starting point. Defence and offence. 
how have the Ukrainians acquitted themselves to date? Extraordinarily well. And we've seen it. I mean, the whole of Ukraine is littered with the hulks of burnt-out Russian tanks. So it's plain that the original defense, the supply of Javelin missiles and N-laws did amazing things and stopped the Russian offensive, blunted it, and then broke off the spear tip. I mean, the Russians have nothing more really to throw at it. They have second, third echelon troops. They're calling up reserves. How many will actually end up in the field? I don't know, but they will end up getting the same treatment. So on that level, the offensive was blunted. The Russian offensive was blunted. The weapons now that are going into Ukraine that will aid defence... Yes, I wanted to ask about, you know, the threat of Russian cruise missiles, for instance. Yes, the the Russians have resorted to calibre cruise missiles. They'll probably send in hypersonic, their Zircon missiles that they're, they're threatening to deploy, all of these sorts of things. But it's interesting to see that Kyiv has seems to have been largely unscathed of late. And I suspect it's because the Americans have sent in uh, a superb surface-to-air missile system, the, the NASAMS, the National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System, which incidentally is the same missile system that defends Washington, D.C. It's extremely good. It uses the AMRAAM, Advanced Medium-Range Air-to-Air Missile, as its basic uh, missile it, there are a lot of batteries attached to it and, and it can defend for a very long range because you can place the batteries far out, far outside the city. So that system will protect Kiev, it will protect uh, finally cities like Odessa and Kharkiv. So it will be harder for the Russians to aim cruise missiles effectively at those cities. And the Germans, too, belatedly, uh, will be sending their RST surface-to-air missile system, medium-range surface-to-air missile, which is a very good system. Uh, but the Germans have been very slow in, in getting it into Ukrainian hands. But it will arrive, and that, too, will help defend Ukrainian cities and sort of strategic points. So it's going to become ever more difficult for the, the Russians to mass to move forward and to use their missile, their ground attack missile systems against Ukraine. So, you know, over the winter, you'll see Ukraine hardening, the shell around Ukraine hardening, which will make it much harder for the, for the Russians to move in. And on the offensive side, we've well, got uh, Ukraine. I mean, it was remarkable what they did at the beginning, but they have got the manpower. They have the manpower. I mean, estimates vary. In our first Bloody Russia podcast, we were saying that there are far more men available to the Ukrainians than one can imagine. And they've had time to train. They've had seven months to train. And yes, they've taken heavy casualties. But if they have 750,000 in reserve to a million in reserve, then that's a lot of men that can fight. And they are being better equipped. They're being equipped for winter as well. NATO has got a fund for that. Yeah, so these Polish T-72s. We know where those 200 T-72 tanks from Poland have gone. They've gone into the Ukrainian counteroffensive, as has the many tanks that the Ukrainians took from the Russians. So 
a lot of that kit is being redirected uh, to, to, towards the Russians, towards the uh, counteroffensive, and, and moving into Luhansk. And it's going to be very difficult for Putin now to say, oh, we're, we're going to uh, annex uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, and essentially the whole of the Donbass region, when they only have about 55% of Donetsk and the Ukrainians are coming in the back door into Luhansk and stopping their, blocking their railheads and stopping uh, the reinforcements, Russian reinforcements to those areas. So Russia is in a very difficult situation. How, um, how have the Ukrainians managed to fight so well to come up with um, such innovative tactics and strategy? I, I mean, they've obviously been fighting for some years in the uh, Donbass area, and they've had some help with training from the West. But some of the things they've done w- weren't even in the Western playbook. I mean, wh- wh- who, how have they learned to do this? It, it's a fusion, and it, 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 I suppose it comes from necessity. And, and and that is the mother of invention. I mean, they have come up with extraordinary strategies, probably put together by US and US Special Operations Command, but but also using tactics that suit Ukraine, that if you've got a, a sort of a hodgepodge of vehicles, a, a sort of medley of different systems, you end up having to improvise. So they, they, they came up with these thunder runs, is how they took those Ukrainian towns and villages back. You know, they just go for it. It is the fact that, that Western reconnaissance teams tend to try and avoid contact with the enemy. The Ukrainian- yeah, but... Okay, so on the Thunder Run as an example, and obviously the Americans have practiced it in the Middle East, um, so it was known about to an extent, but is it partly because you can do a Thunder Run now because you've got such good visualisation of the battlefield from above that they're able to then, you know, whip round the side of villages and towns and, and send in high Mars to take out command? What's c- going c- on that c- wasn't there c- before? C- completely. Well, first of all, they had the high Mars, so they, they could take out command posts, uh, ammunition depots, railheads, and stop reinforcements coming in. Then they had very good overall intelligence from the air. And, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the, the, the drones. And they knew that there was no defence in depth, and they managed to persuade the Russians to send a lot of their first tank army and other uh, military formations down south to bolster the Kherson uh, defence. So th- there was no de- defence in depth amongst the the Russians, and, and the Ukrainians knew that, and certainly the Americans knew that. And you can tell that in many different ways, whether it's signals intelligence or, or national reconnaissance officers' intelligence or intelligence from drones. So the Ukrainians knew where they were going to go, and it was brilliant. It caught the Russians off guard. And the Russians have no capability, no capacity to reform, regroup and reconstitute. So in terms of offensive action, it is definitely the Ukrainians on the front foot. And I don't know how the Russians are ever going to regroup and send their units in. Regain in a the initiative. But yeah. Particularly if you don't have an NCO corps. How do you inspire? How do you lead? How do you have people at the front? How do you keep units together? And there's so little command and communication. There's so little communication and control between the the battalion uh, tactical groups in the Russian army. 
they all are essentially at sea. And it's fine if it's static or if they're doing this grinding artillery movement forward. But once the Ukrainians are on top of them, the Russian superiority or former superiority has gone and they can't use the, that tactic. And that's the only tactic they had were these sort of grinding artillery, this creeping artillery barrage. And, and that is no longer an option. The Ukrainians are not going to stop. We've seen a major success for the for them in the north, and they're also uh, banging away in the south and making some progress there. Uh, what about striking in the middle? Is Mariupol the next target? People are talking about Mariupol, and and we'll see what happens. You know, the Ukrainians will certainly move brigades around and will certainly be forming up. And, they, they and why to, would Mariupol be a good place? Be, 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 because it's a great way to cut the uh, corridor to Crimea. So once they cut that, it, it'll be very difficult for Russia to... It, it dismembers and truncates the entire Russian front. It, it, it turns it into segments. They can't move between it. They can't reinforce. They can't uh, sort of use Crimea as a backstop. It, it, it'll be very difficult. And, and once the Ukrainians move forward and with their long-range artillery with HIMARS, they're going to be able to hit far deeper into Crimea, for example. So you've seen them moving their aircraft back from air bases in Crimea. You've seen them moving their navy back from Sevastopol. They're getting nervous, even in those rear areas. And it, it, it's, if ever there was an indication of how successful Ukraine has been, both psychologically and militarily, it, it's that. It's that the rear areas are beginning to panic. The Russian call-up of reserves won't really change the dynamic. They can't regroup, reconstitute or redirect their efforts. This really is a story of David and Goliath. Let's look now a little bit more into detail of particular arms. So we'll start in the air. Russia's inability at the beginning of this conflict to knock out the Ukrainian air force and gain air superiority or supremacy uh, that was a major failing. It's been critical to the entire campaign and to its continued collapse on the Russian side. This extraordinary patchwork of Ukrainian air defences, whether it's the Soviet-era uh, S-300 surface-to-air missiles or the man-portable air defence systems, the shoulder-launched missiles that the West has sent, the Star Streak from the UK or the Stinger from the United States, it's had a devastating effect on the Russian Air Force, quite apart from the fact that the Russian Air Force fears overflying uh, Ukrainian forces. They don't have precision missiles. We, we, we said this at the start in, in the first Bloody Russia podcast, that because Russia lacks precision air-to-surface missiles, they're forced to overfly Ukrainian positions, which puts them in an incredibly vulnerable position. So you get a lot of Sukhoi Su-25s, for example, being shot down, these, these slow ground attack aircraft. And so Russia hasn't been able to use its air assets to dominate or control what's going down on the ground. And, and that has been a key failure. 
Why didn't they, uh, right at the beginning of the war, you remember when the Gulf War II started, there was a huge sort of um, cruise missile attack, wasn't there? Why, why didn't they take out the Ukrainian Air Force in one sort of big you know, be, be, go be, at the beginning. Be, be, because the idea of Russian shock of an awe is is just a myth. It, it's uh, what? Well, so they just can't do it. They, they, they can't, can't. They can't do it. Oh. Uh, they, they do have, uh, as we've seen, cruise missiles, but they use those really to attack civilian in- infrastructure because they're failing on the battlefield. It's lashing out. We put that in our artillery podcast. So it, it, it's something that, yes, they can hit apartment blocks. Yes, they can land missiles near to uh, nuclear plants. But in terms of actually making a difference on the battlefield, it, it is almost zero. And they, what, they can't coordinate large groups of their own aircraft over... Yeah. Uh, in a target. Well, they can't coordinate, and those aircraft are vulnerable. And in the meantime, their attack their attack helicopters are going to be brought down by shoulder-launched surface-to-air missiles or by Jeppards, you know, German um, tanks armed with cannon, 35 mil cannons. So wherever they go, they're going to be vulnerable. And it, it just hasn't been a battle-winning uh, tactic or, or battle-winning asset for the Russians at all. Do you think this um, this war um, is is the war where drones have finally had their moment? I mean, I know we've got drone strikes in the Middle East and things, but they're sort of individual elements. Is this the war that where drones suddenly show their use? It's, yes, it's a turning point. No one can deny the the, the impact of drones on so many areas. I mean, given that Ukraine was lacking a large air force, that it had Soviet-era aircraft, it couldn't deploy them for the same reasons that the Russians can deploy them. I mean, you do get a few sort of ageing Sukhoi 24s overflying Russian positions to bomb them, but the Ukrainians suffer from the same problems as the Russians. They're pretty hopeless old aircraft, and they don't have precision weapons, although they have managed to fit harm high-speed anti-radiation missiles. They've been very successful in taking out Russian air defences. But the, so it has allowed instead for the drone to find its space, to find its place. And, and the Ukrainians have been incredibly good at using them, whether it's the Bayraktar TV2 drone attacking Russian tank columns, whether it's using commercial drones and quadcopter drones to, to drop grenades and explosives down Russian tank turrets. It's been incredibly useful. And now the Americans are supplying things such as the Boeing Scan Eagle, uh, which has a persistence of 20 hours, so they can keep a persistent watch on the battlefield. Then you add to that the, the kamikaze drones, uh, such as the Switchblade or the Phoenix. So there, there are all these different types of drones and loiter munitions being used by the Ukrainians to devastating effect, and, and the Russians simply have no answer to that. And also, there's a load of stuff in space as well, a load of kit up there. Yes, there is. And it's been fascinating, again, to see how not only has it been a moment for drones, it's also been a moment for commercial satellite technology to play its part in the modern battlefield. Uh, Just two examples include the Maxar Technologies satellites, Earth observation satellites, imaging satellites, that were 
essential in showing that the Russians had lied over their cruelty and barbarity and mass murder in places like Bucha. So, you know, that has shown up the the weaknesses of Russia. That that has allowed persistent coverage, really, of Russian positions, quite apart from the, the, the stuff that's being fed to the National Reconnaissance Office in the United States. So it's given a whole new level of reconnaissance and imaging. And also, I mean, these satellites ultimately could be quite vulnerable. I mean, they're quite big, but um, there's a lot of miniaturization going on. There is. And, and we have to mention Starlink as well, because that has given, given their over 10,000 Starlink terminals provided to Ukraine, it, it gives uh, really... This, this across, is a, uh, like a um, secure phone. This is the Elon Musk. This is internet access. So it has given internet access across Ukraine and it has allowed both commanders and civilians to keep in touch and to know what's going on. So that too has been a battle-winning asset for the Ukrainians. This is something the Russians had never factored in. That you've mentioned miniaturization. Over the next year or two, there will be increasing levels of tiny satellites, cube satellites. These are just a few inches long, um, adding to the reconnaissance assets to the West. Just to take two examples, the UK is launching Prometheus 2, which they're, they're the size of cereal boxes. They're being launched this year from the, the Virgin Galactic. Um, from Spaceport Cornwall. So, you know, those two satellites, just twin satellites, they will have uh, an imaging capacity and a radio frequency, signals intelligence capacity. Then in 2024, the UK is launching a satellite cluster called Azalea, and that will have synthetic aperture radar to map the ground, it will have signals intelligence, and it will have imaging. So in tiny satellites, you're getting both the capacity to onboard process uh, the information coming in, so you won't have so much information having to travel backwards and forwards through space, you just have targets being sent to commanders on the ground and so you get the miniaturization and they're they're impossible to shoot down essentially so and you get wider coverage so the west is increasing its capabilities and those capabilities will help ukraine as well all right moving on from the air to artillery and armored vehicles we had an episode, episode 59, on the 23rd of August, which talks quite a lot about artillery, the history of artillery, but just a quick um, catch-up on what's going on on the battlefield. We mentioned in that artillery podcast you know, that, that Ukraine has spectacularly changed its calibre of, of artillery weapons. It, it's gone to NATO standard uh, whilst in the midst of war. It's an amazing thing that they've done. And do you look back to, to what the Ukrainian army was like in 2014? It's transformed itself. Uh, I mean, in 2014, it had bad equipment, bad tactics, a lot of drunken commanders. I mean, basically Soviet-era commanders. And that has changed, and this conflict shows that. In, in terms of artillery, they've got better equipment. They've moved to NATO calibre, so they're, they're getting NATO calibre shells. 
being provided to them. They've got far more self-propelled howitzers now so they can move and support the, the forward momentum of the Ukrainian counterattack. The Russians still have their sclerotic tactics, the creeping barrage we mentioned. So, and, and also the, 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 the quantity of ammunition, of hardware being chucked about, is, is, is becoming more comparable. You know, the Ukrainians have, have raised their rate of fire, their accuracy, um, the, 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 the amount of uh, ammunition they can lay down, the amount of fire they can lay down. Whereas the Russians, firstly, they've been taken out, a lot of their artillery pieces, and secondly, they can't get the supplies to the front. So, and their ammo dumps are being blown up by HIMARS. So the, the, that has changed dramatically you know, in, in, in the months that this war has lasted. So, so the former Russian advantage has just died on the battlefield. And armoured vehicles, this is another great uh, Russian feature of their army, the, the, the rolling tanks across the plain. Well, as we said in Bloody Russia, the, the first one, the problem is they stuck to the roads. They can't go off-road, firstly, because they hit the mud, and the, the mud is going to be a problem for everyone from now on, now that autumn is coming in. But they couldn't go off-road anyway because they don't have command and control. You know, in order to command tank armies and control where they're going, you, you have to have a very good system. And the Russians don't have that. The Ukrainians are simply better equipped now. They're, they're getting better equipped. They, they certainly want more tanks. They want better tanks. But they've done pretty well so far with light vehicles, with recce vehicles, and with this sort of extraordinary collection that, that the West has provided, most of them from sort of old redundant stockpiles but in time and humvees and things like that yeah they've got everything yeah. from humvees to land cruisers bushmasters they've got everything being being pushed forward uh, and that's what happens when you have to improvise that's what happens when you don't have a, a, a sort of coherent fleet of vehicles you're just using whatever you can yeah and also i mean some of those vehicles are a lot easier to operate and maintain because they're sort of closer to normal cars and things yeah but it's damn difficult if you've got such a collection of different vehicles oh, yeah. this is a problem i mean they, they do have a problem with standardization because so many countries are given their different different sorts of ammunition and different sorts of vehicles but it's but, a stopgap though isn't it i mean at it, some it, point it, they it, will it, it, they will, they will standardise, but they need to use what they've got. Exactly, in the same way that, that they will pretty soon standardise, I think, around the M109, the, the, the self-propelled howitzer of the United States. And the United States is already thinking about using, sending you know, more modern tanks. And I have no doubt there will be airmen in in ukrainian airmen training on a10 thunderbolts and f16s in the united states so uh, you know in time they would that, will would be, that be all all you would need to take on the russian air force because so, they're quite old air, aircraft aren't they 
They they are, but the systems are much more modern, and the missiles are, are essentially mm. more modern. And the training is better. They're always trying to get rid of the warthog, and it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back because it's so effective. But mm. then it would have the same problem if it certainly if it used its cannon and had to fly close to armor, it would still suffer from the same levels of vulnerability that Russian aircraft do. However, well armored it is. But it's a, it's a great aircraft. I, I'm very fond of it. And I think both of us have seen it in firepower demonstrations, and it's pretty awesome. Yeah, airy. Yeah. Right. Before we get on to asymmetric, uh, a short word about the naval situation. Well, the naval situation is noticeable, really, by its absence. Yes, the Russians have used submarines to launch cruise missiles against targets in Ukraine, although those stocks are, are getting as low as every other kind of Russian munition. But the fleet, the Russian Black Sea fleet, has really been confined to port in Sevastopol. It hasn't played a huge part. And once that it was obvious, given Harpoon and anti-ship missiles were supplied to Ukraine, that they were never going to mount any kind of landing, amphibious landing, on the, the, the shores of Ukraine, the southern shores of Ukraine, to take Odessa. The fleet has stayed away. And, of course, the Moskva was, was hit and sunk. So the fleet has played very little part in, in the ongoing proceedings. And the latest news, of course, is that the Russian kilo class submarines have left Sevastopol and gone back to southern Russia. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in Crimea. I mean, Crimea was held up as this safe base, this peninsula from which Russia could operate and could operate its Black Sea fleet. That is no longer the case. Uh, the simple use of a drone to attack the headquarters of the Black Sea fleet even though it didn't do a great deal of damage. That alone was symbolic of, of and demonstrative of what is going to happen in the future, that the, the Russians are going to be extremely vulnerable down on that peninsula. And I can't see the Black Sea Fleet remaining in situ for, for very much longer. And that is one of the most important elements in their mind for having Crimea, isn't it, isn't it? That, that port? Completely, and and seeing it as a, as a launch pad into southern Ukraine. But if southern Ukraine goes and Crimea is under the sights of the Ukrainians, then it becomes very difficult to hold. It becomes a strategic asset that really becomes no asset. And are the uh, Russian naval units, are, they're not allowed to travel um, through the Bosphorus, is that correct? Well, they can travel through the Bosphorus, but the Turkey can... Uh, if it wishes, clamp down and 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 put a a tag, put a put a put a counter down, saying this is what we will allow to travel through if you're a military asset. So it's really up to Turkey, and I think Turkey is in no mood now to allow the Russians to get away with anything. And would uh, that include submarines, or can they sneak through? They can sneak through, but 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 uh, I they, they're, they're, I it's not advisable, and it, it, it's still covered by. Tur Turkey's decision on what military assets can can travel through, and Turkey, I, like India, I think, is is seeing that Ukraine is on the front foot, and therefore it has to be on the winning side. So, I mean, it could come to the point that the the major naval power in the Black Sea could become Turkey rather than Russia. Indeed, 
in the same way that... Or some other country. Well, in the same way that Russia has really lost its place in the Baltic. Uh, and the, the fact that the headquarters of the, the Russian Navy is based in St. Petersburg and yet they can barely operate, they, they, they wouldn't be able to move. The, the, the Russian fleet in, in both the Black Sea and the Baltic would be taken out in a day in any general conflict with the West. All right, Jamie, the asymmetric war, something you love talking about, um, both from the Ukrainian and the Russian side. But first of all, uh, the Ukrainians, they have uh, the moral high ground and they have high morale. Yes, that's why asymmetry has always been important to the Ukrainians. They were, they were fighting an asymmetric war from the start because they were the weaker party. As you said, it's, it's David versus Goliath. So why not use a slingshot against someone who's a giant and wearing a lot of armour? And that's what the Ukrainians have done. And there's far more coordination now that you're getting partisan activity, you're getting insurgents, you're not just talking about have-a-go heroes. You're talking about special forces going in behind enemy lines, certainly down in Kherson. There's a lot of evidence beginning to come out that logistics are being hit, camps are being hit, individual officers and soldiers are being hit. And that's before you get on to teenagers with knives attacking soldiers in Kherson. So it's becoming incredibly clear that the partisan activity is increasing and the vulnerability of the Russians is increasing and, and Russian morale is suffering as a result. And on, on top of that, they're able to attack the Russian civilian administration that they've put in place. Yes, whether it's involving car bombs, shotguns, pistols uh, or HIMARS. You see a concerted campaign now by the Ukrainians to take out prosecutor's offices, admin offices, you'll probably find that a lot of the key Russian individuals uh, at the top have probably moved back to Moscow and are broadcasting there and, and sending messages saying, you must stand, you must give up your life for the motherland, uh, whilst you know the, the, the juniors are being taken out. And so Ukraine is being very successful with its propaganda war. And also the way they make their propaganda, that you know, the Russian propaganda is bleak. It's tinged with things like the threat of nuclear war and, and so on. And in one example of the Ukrainian propaganda was, was a, uh, a dinner, I think it was, held by Zelensky for various visitors to Kiev from Europe and the West. And in amongst the, the different... Uh, courses that they had there was a watermelon course and a note attached to it on this and on the note it essentially was saying that these watermelons had come from the east uh, from villages that, that had been liberated um, only that day or the day before well exactly and and, and it's the messaging that is so vital. a message of hope isn't it rather than death and destruction yes because the only thing the russians can offer is death and destruction. And if you look at the asymmetric warfare fought by the Russians, I mean, first of all, as you said, it's, it's, it's a different propaganda message. So it's one of defending the motherland, and no one actually believes it. 
And secondly, brutality and coercion is what they do, which is why you're getting mass graves, uh, the, the discovery of torture victims, the discovery of torture chambers. This is part of what they do. And so it's it's been easy for the Ukrainians to turn that around and show uh, beneath the light of publicity, the spotlight of publicity, but exactly Putin, what the Russians are about. Putin, the emperor, he still, I mean, he still has clothes, doesn't he? But at some point they're going to, you know, it's going to be revealed that he's a naked man. Yes. And an unattractive sight. A <laughs> pretty unattractive sight it is, yeah. yeah. And, and, and if you look at every bit of asymmetric warfare the Russians are trying, it, it's all so clumsy. You look at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, the threat of turning that into a dirty bomb, of having shells landing near it. It had to go cold. The Ukrainian controllers had to essentially switch it off because it was so dangerous. And it is still so dangerous. I mean, the one thing that Ukraine can't afford is another Chernobyl. But it's so clumsy that it will blow up not only in everybody's face, it will certainly blow up in the Russians' face as well. They, they, so they've been trying to use that, of course, as part of their asymmetric warfare, their, their nuclear blackmail. And that the, nuclear blackmail, I mean, all it takes is for the wind to blow from the west to the east, and, and Russia's in as much trouble as everyone else. Well, precisely, and, and we'll talk about the, the, the threat of nuclear weapons as well a bit later on. But uh, so you've got that, you've got their obvious use of grain as uh, an asymmetric weapon, although that has eased somewhat, and, and that's appalled Putin that he had to make that concession. But uh, the Russians have still hit a lot of Ukrainian warehouses. There's an estimate that the Russians destroyed 10 million metric tons of, of grain. Uh, the, there's a problem for Ukraine in planting the, the, the next crop, the next harvest. So there are all those sorts of problems. But, but food was another aspect. Obviously, oil and gas was another. But again, the West has, because the market is slightly more flexible than one might imagine, the West has come up with means of trying to counter that. The West has just got to get through one winter because the supply situation will have been rerouted by this time next year, won't it? And, and so he'll have no market. He, he'll have destroyed his own market by then. Well, and the Russian economy is, is collapsing and, and, and longer term, no one is going to invest in Russia. You might get some Chinese companies, but the West won't go back in there. So he has sent Russia back into the dark ages for, for a generation until they get a functioning democracy that can be trusted because you don't want a situation where there's going to be someone worse than Putin because no one's going to trust that leader either. Lastly, before we talk about winter and the melt, uh NBC, nuclear, biological and chemical warfare. That has certainly moved up the agenda, given Putin's very obvious threat to use nuclear weapons and that the wind can shift and all of this and all his rhetoric. Again, a lot of that is aimed at the far right, the nationalists, trying to mollify them. But... Uh, of course, there is in Russian military doctrine this idea of tactical nuclear weapons. No one quite knows at what level and at what time they will deploy and employ them. But 
as Professor Lawrence Friedman said, there's no such thing really as a tactical nuclear weapon. Were Putin to use a nuke on European soil for the first time in history, he would destroy himself. I can't see a situation where he would order a tactical nuke to be used that would not fundamentally change the international order. In terms of the West's response, the West would have no option but to go in very hard, whether to defend Ukraine, to deploy forward troops, and that could, of course, lead to a general war. And if Putin wants that, then certainly those around him probably don't, and certainly the Russian people don't, and I can't see Putin surviving that. I think I said in the last podcast that if he tries to demolish Ukraine, he would actually be demolishing Russia because the Ukrainians are not going to stop. You know, they're not going to stop just because a tactical nuke is employed. It will be hard for the Russians to actually deploy it because of the lack of concentrated Ukrainian forces. Where would he use it? Where would he disentangle his forces from advancing Ukrainian forces? How would there be decent command and control? There are all these sorts of problems. Well, he would drop it on Kiev, wouldn't he? who knows where he would drop it? He's more likely to drop it on the battlefield to try and terrorise everyone and terrify them into stopping the counteroffensive to make people pause. But I don't think it would make the Ukrainians pause. No. They will simply go on because whether they die from radiation blast or from a tank battle, it's all the same to them. They're still going to liberate their country. I think most importantly, it would be very difficult for Putin to sell it as defending the motherland by dropping a nuke on territory he considers Russia. How would he sell that? Even in even in his own mind, how would he convince himself? Yeah, so, and actually, the uh, you know, there's such a, a stigma attached to uh, nuclear weapons that even the very smallest tactical nuclear weapon, so called, has radiation and fallout. And it's different from the biggest bomb you can drop. Well, it would, I guarantee, be the end of the Sino-Russian relationship. China would run for, for cover. It would be the end of any sort of contact, any sort of relationship between China, for example, or India, for example, if they continued their dealings with Russia after that. It, it would be suicide for Russia. So it, it wouldn't be the end of Ukraine. It would certainly be the end of Russia. And Putin has made great play of the West trying to destroy Russia and make Russia fall to pieces. The single use of any kind of nuclear weapon, I think, would see the unravelling of Russia and and any attempt at trying to legitimise its military operation or its it, the, the the continued conflict. I, I don't think it would help Russia in any way, and any of the military people around Putin would would recognise that. So I, I'm hugely sceptical that that a tactical nuke would be used. The world would not believe it was self-defence. Certainly not. And similarly, it would be hard for Russia to employ chemical weapons because chemical weapons. Are easier to use in a situation where there are static front lines, where there are known concentrations of enemy, you know, or whether it's Russia just dropping phosgene barrel bombs on Aleppo, for example, in Syria. Yes, you can do that. Or Saddam Hussein uh, using nerve agents against Halabja in, in Kurdish territory. 
But it's much harder to do when you've got a rolling campaign, when you've got a, a kinetic campaign and the Ukrainians are making gains. So I, I can't see how that would be easy for the Russians to deploy. Right, Jamie, to end it, let's talk about what's going to happen this winter and when the snows melt in 2023. Firstly, on the battlefield. There's no sign that the Ukrainians are actually going to stop fighting and pack it up for the winter. They certainly won't. And in the meantime, Russia has promised, or Putin has promised, that he's going to raise 300,000 more troops or more, and that somehow he's going to transform the situation. That is not going to happen. We've already said that he's not going to be able to train them, equip them. The commanders have been killed or they've been sacked. There's no command and control. I don't know how he pulls a rabbit out of the hat. Yes, in the last podcast, we were a little premature, or I was a little premature in claiming that the entire Russian campaign would fizzle out by the end of August. But that was because I believed that the Ukrainians would mount their counteroffensive at the beginning of August rather than towards the end. And I still think that what we are seeing, which is why we call this podcast Endgame, we are seeing the beginning of the end. And Russia is not going to be able to deploy tens of thousands more troops, whether it's sex offenders, murderers, other sorts of convicts, or whether it's just conscription of those who have had a bit of military service before. How are they going to train them in the middle of a Russian winter? How are they going to equip them? You know, the Russians came up with a third army to try and uh, fill in what had been destroyed by the Ukrainians. That in turn was destroyed. So they're in disarray. And given how chaotic they were before uh, this campaign, you know, thinking they had it made and they didn't, how are they going to suddenly reconstitute? Well, especially as they've lost so many of their frontline commanders high, and fairly high ranking or sacked and their training staff and their NCO corps. I yeah. mean, well, they don't have an NCO corps, but, but, but all their experienced soldiers have gone. They're either dead or wounded, and they're not getting back to the front line. So, so, just, so there's the winter and then there's the melt. Over the winter, the Ukrainians keep up a steady push, not necessarily a big event, but just a steady push, is that? Who knows what they will do, but they will certainly continue and the Russians will try and dig in. I don't think they'll be successful in that. I don't think they have the will to dig in, to survive and maintain their positions through incredibly cold winters. I think during that time, there will be more weapons flooding into Ukraine. By the time the spring comes, Ukrainians will be even better equipped uh, and, and able to maintain the offensive. So Russia really has no option. It is losing. Its army is collapsing, and you're going to get more of that. So although I said originally at the end of August, I still maintain that by the spring, there will be a very different situation. And it won't just be a question of the Russian army collapsing. It will be a question of the Russian leadership collapsing, because Putin won't be able to go on maintaining this lie or maintaining his war. It's just going to be impossible. So and it's going to move 
onto the uh, the global level effectively. I, I think in Russia itself, mm. you're you're getting demonstrations now against the the military draft. I think that. As I've said, I don't think there'll be a general mobilisation because why do you want more untrained people going into an army? Well, I mean, and also to become very obvious that people aren't mobilising, are they? And They're it going to be, avoid it. And it will be obvious that, that Russia is losing or has lost. So I can't see Russia surviving through this, In it, you know, that, that its campaign surviving through this. In terms of what happens eventually in Russia... Well, people have said, I've always maintained that, that Putin eventually will have to go, whether he's going to fall down the stairs, like the former director of the Moscow Aviation Institute recently, or whether he's going to fall out of a window, or whether he's going to be hit by a hammer. Maybe uh, they'll just send him to the front line. Maybe they will. Dress, no, sit him um, on a horse, bare-chested. And... He, he, he might be one of the more competent soldiers in the front line, yeah. one of the fitter He's ones. missed vocation. <laughs> oh, so maybe he'll fly over in a microlight with, with geese surrounding him. But but I, 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 he is not going to do well from this, and I, I, I still have absolutely no doubt that it is Ukraine that is going to succeed and survive. Uh, and, and so that is really the message that we've come up with over three podcasts. And so far, we have been largely correct. I, I think that the impetus is with Ukraine, and I can't see Russia uh, being able to halt that. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. We'll see what happens. So it goes. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Ashton, and his name is James Jackson. Please subscribe to BVH on your podcast app. It really helps others to hear about us if you leave us a lot of stars and a review. You can also find us on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. For suggestions and comments, you can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. 